What's up, world? That's hey. the, that's the introduction, Manuela. I'm sorry. <laughs> Very official. I like it. Thank you. Um. Well, I've been promising you all the first fucking podcast guest, and here we go. Uh. Well, I'm not even gonna introduce her. I'll let her introduce herself. Go ahead. Uh, thank you for having me here. I'm very excited about the creation of this space. Uh, my name is Manuela Gomez. I'm a philosophy professor, and I'm also a border resident. And I know Isaac because we're colleagues. When she says that she's actually a philosophy professor, she's a legit philosophy professor. Unlike myself, I just pretend to be one. <laughs> but Manuela is the fucking real deal, yo. Um, I'm excited for this podcast in general because it's going to give me an opportunity to speak with her outside of the, you know, our works, our work environment. Um, and it's going to give me, hopefully, and you all as well, a chance to get to know the inner workings of a mind of a philosopher that is not just me, right? Because I promise you, well, definitely for those of you who have taken a philosophy class before, but if you haven't, uh, mine is not necessarily the most orthodox approach. And I'm not saying that Manuela's is to be sure, but I am saying that it's definitely different from mine. So. Well, I want to make a, a, a clarification, right? I, I'm not going to allow you to say that you're not a philosopher because that's precisely my philosophy, right? To not delegitimize ourselves. So even though we have different approaches, I wouldn't say that you're not a philosopher. We're just as as philosophers as it can get. Just different different ways of doing it. That is beautiful. It really is. And honestly, this is drawing back to a conversation that we had prior to the clusterfuck of trying to start this podcast in the first place. Y'all don't know what it was about, but me, Manuela and Evan back here know that it was pretty difficult to get this bad boy it started. It only took us 50 minutes of technical issues and we found it. Finally, that's five zero fifty was a five zero. <laughs> right. But one of the things that Manuela was talking about, because I asked her, well, honestly, if she could define what what, what if she could define for me what she believed philosophy was. And, you know, uh, one of the things that she came up with was the fact that she does not con like considering herself a gatekeeper. So I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. So for me, philosophy is a very disruptive tool for the longest time. It has been seen as a space for only uh, elitist scholars to maintain this power of who gets to be a philosopher and how philosophy gets to be practiced and I am very fortunate and proud to be the advisor for the EPCC philosophy club and a couple of weeks ago we had our first philosophy club meeting and the activity for the first meeting was having a lot of these new faces a lot of students that are not even philosophy majors having them define what philosophy was and I would like to share the winner of the contest just because uh, the fact that I have a degree in philosophy and the fact that I teach philosophy doesn't mean that I know the ultimate definition of philosophy. So this is from one of my students. It's his first time taking a philosophy class, but he defined philosophy as a multi-purpose tool that humans use to make sense of the world that they live in. Philosophy can be a way for someone to live their life, a way for someone to see and appreciate said life, or a means for someone to improve it. Philosophy requires the opening of one's mind, so by extension, it ends up being a fundamental device to connect cultures and societies. Philosophy can help people cope, it helps people learn, it helps people be aware of themselves and of others. Philosophy can bring a sense in a world that in every way makes no sense at all. <laughs> I like that last part about not making sense at all, making sense of the senseless. And are you sure? I got to ask, just to be clear, that was a student response? It was a student, and we had 10 different, about 10 different definitions, and it was very hard for us to judge the first, the second, and the third place because everybody said powerful things about what philosophy is, right? But if we want to get like a very formal definition, it's the love of wisdom. It's the love of being critical and of questioning and of never being satisfied with an answer. Um, but I think it gets more political than that. For, for us, for you and me, uh, philosophy has to be a very disruptive tool for us to create this space and for us to say we also have something to say. And if you're not going to give us a platform, we're going to create it because our ideas are just as philosophical as the ideas of European men from 200 years ago. Honestly, that's like my biggest shit right now. I'm really big into the indigenizing of philosophy, especially this idea that, I mean, fuck, dude, we have to... For some strange reason, prove our, I don't want to say prove ourselves because me personally, I want to think at least that I've transcended this idea of having to prove myself to anybody, especially like you say, these, this European conception of what philosophy is. But at the same time, my belief doesn't really legitimize the practice itself, right? So there's no question that we have to keep as, you know, me as a Chicano man, 
you as however you would identify with, right? But definitely as a person of color um, here from the borderland, that would, we have to justify our even exercising a philosophy in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that if it doesn't fall within the lines of this academic institutional philosophy, then we're immediately dismissed as what philosophy isn't, per se, right? Right. And I think that's the beautiful thing that you keep mentioning is this, this disruptive force. And I think that's, fuck, yeah, dude, like, it's disruptive in the sense that there's this hegemony, this fucking power practice that's been put into play since, you know, the initial colonization of the Americas, right? Obviously, well, for, obviously for you and I, but for those of us who aren't very versed with this idea. And... It's it, it 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 serves to limit what philosophy is, at least in my eyes, and clearly in your eyes as well. And um, when we have students and also you know professors like you that come along and say, no, it can be more than that. You know, we're trying to make sense of the senseless, and you know, just because these people came along and made a little bit of sense of it, these people being you know the the, the ancient Greeks, doesn't mean that that's the entire picture. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I think we have to be very aware of this insider-outsider positionality. And for the longest time, we've had outsiders define what our philosophy is. This is what indigenous philosophy is. This is what border philosophy is. Oh, you're Latin American? This is what Latin American philosophy is. And I think for the very first time, we're a part of a generation that is reclaiming that power and saying, we are young, we are people of color, we are not the most orthodox in the sense that we're going to dress a particular way. We're going to have tattoos. We're going to speak multiple languages. We're going to navigate cultures. And we are ourselves going to define what this philosophy is. And that does not please many people that have been these gatekeepers of philosophy for the longest time. Because we've had people profiting from being outsiders, telling everybody how we work. And... It hasn't been easy for us. We have had to prove ourselves constantly, right? Not just as minorities, not just for me as a woman, not by being the first ones in our family or perhaps um, we're the first in many, in many instances. So it's not a, an easy task because there's a lot of resistance. I mean, I'm sure sponsors all over the world aren't waiting to throw this this money at us with a podcast and saying, oh, your voice needs to necessarily be heard. But it's like the stubbornness of us saying, no, we're still going to do it one way or another, even if it takes us 50 minutes to figure out the technical <laughs> difficulties, even if uh, we have to do it on a Saturday night. Like we have been pushing. So we have had to prove ourselves and it, it hasn't been easy. Right. But I think the beauty of it lies in the fact that we are aware of how it's been working and we don't like it. And we're creating new avenues. I mean, that's such a, just a beautiful response, but I will interject one thing before I continue with my next question for you, and that is to say, you motherfucking sponsors, bro, you better hop on real fucking quick because this <laughs> shit is going fucking global. <laughs> Where you And it's, it's in your best interest, bro, to hop on while you can, okay? But with that in mind, uh, a lot of what you said, I think, I know you definitely have been keeping up with some of the few, the, the few podcasts that I've uh, uh, released already, mm -hmm. and I know for a fact that you know one of the recurring themes that I have been discussing is the role of identity politics. Right. Yes? And I think it might be a little bit confusing for some of the people, this has been my, uh, in reflecting on some of my podcasts, how it might be a little confusing for individuals who are not as versed in the identity politics game as you and I, mm -hmm. especially when I personally say shit like, I am a proud Chicano man in one breath, and then turn around in another breath and say, but identity politics are fucking terrible. So the idea right. here is like, well, you just fucking identified as a Chicano, bro. And now you're going to tell me that identity politics are, are, are a bad thing, mm -hmm. right? And I was kind of hoping that, you know, you could uh, perhaps elaborate on this a little bit, idea. So we have to consider what the role of philosophy is in regards to identity. And philosophy gives us a lot of tools to try to understand why identity is important. Or at least it's important for us to understand. Right. So when we talk about who someone is, the ultimate question should be, why do we care about why someone defines themselves as X or Y? And I think this is where sociopolitical philosophy comes in. Ethics comes in. Existentialism comes in. Right. Um, ultimately, unfortunately, identity has been explored just for the sociopolitical, um, just to see who gets validated, who gets to have rights, who gets to say certain things. Um, I think identity is a very important issue in philosophy. Uh, part of my doctorate research is, is exploring 
border student identity in relation to philosophy education. Now, that doesn't mean that all people from the border have the same identity, but I do think it's sometimes important for us to highlight um, the characteristics, the phenomenological elements of what it is to be X or Y, right? Because me, as a Mexican-American woman from the border who teaches philosophy, I have experiences that are fundamentally mine that are not going to be the same as a white professor from Yale teaching philosophy. So I think it's important for us to explore, well, what are all of these layers? What are all of these intersections? Um, I don't know if that clarifies it. Oh, it definitely does. And before you continue, let me interject real quick. I, have to, I fucking have to ask this now that the stuff has been broached. What do you think about these fucking white scholars from Yale who come to El Paso or other areas in the Southwest, maybe even not even the Southwest because the Chicano, Mexicano, Mexicana identity is not limited just to the Southwest the United States. But these Ivy League professors um, who are definitely not Mexicanos, Mexicanas or Chicanex of any way. Right. And yet are teaching our philosophy, as it were. I can tell you what I've experienced personally in Ivy League schools because I was picked for um, a scholarship at Yale University. So I've attended Yale University as a student and it was precisely for uh, a culture uh, program that emphasized on minorities. And for the very first time in my life, I got to experience what real racism is. And when I say real racism, it means like the low vulgar type of racism in which you are left speechless, right? So I was at Yale University. Um, it was a group of, of about 50 people. Um, the focus was African-American literature. And we were selected by our credentials, right? So these are people that knew that I myself was a professor of philosophy. These are people that looked at my CV, and that's supposedly why I was picked. But around uh, the room, there was only about five people of color. The rest were um, Anglo white professors from all over the United States, uh, perhaps even the world. Um, they all received a bottle of water, right, except myself. So when I said, could I please have a bottle of water? They told me, if you're thirsty, the bathroom is over there. There's a pitcher, and you can go fill it up with water. This right. this really happened this in really, 2000... 2017. So not that long ago. Not that long ago. And yet still actively experiencing... And like I said, obviously studying philosophy, I was the first one um, at Texas A&M to graduate with a graduate degree as a Mexican-American ever, oh, right? Really? I didn't know that. Yes. As a graduate degree, as so a, a master's a degree. Graduate, right. In the first one, in the first philosophy one, department. The first wow. one. What year? I believe Kim Diaz was the first one with a PhD, a colleague of ours. Kim Diaz, also a colleague of ours, who, by the way, uh, has a very interesting story for those of you all who are wondering, specifically in regards to the UTEP philosophy department. I won't get too deeply into it, but I will say that this question about these fucking academic Ivy League scholars who come from not the Southwest and how they get privileged over people who are from here and are just as equally qualified and yet get looked over. Right. So to go back to your question, how do I feel about it? Well, I'm very well aware of how many people are profiting from our philosophy and from telling us and explaining to us what our experience is like. I am very against somebody that is not from the border to come and tell us what the border is like. I'm very against someone who has not lived what it is to be a Mexican-American to teach me about Mexican-American philosophy. Right. I myself, I'm very skeptical and I'm very aware. I, I'm not going to be teaching what it's like to be Asian. Right. Even though I love Asian philosophy, even though I practice meditation, even though I'm fascinated by Buddhism, I am aware of my limitations. So if there is somebody out there that says I have all the credentials in the world, I wouldn't say, but it's mine. And I got here first. I would be open to the possibility of maybe this voice belongs to somebody else. Right. So how, how do I feel about it? I feel like we're slowly opening our eyes and we're we're slowly trying to stop that kind of exploitation. All right. Now, with that in mind, I have to ask you this. Um, it's definitely something that I noticed when I was, quote unquote, doing my fucking 
little social justice warrior shit along here in the borderland. But, you know, I, I dismiss it a little bit, but it wasn't not like I wasn't not doing shit. You know what I mean? But what I'm trying to say is that I wasn't as involved and really passionate as I've already discussed in the previous podcast. I'm willing to reiterate again, as other people are. But one thing I did notice, Manuela, is that there are people who fucking come to El Paso from all around the United States to volunteer in our community. Mm-hmm. And the idea here is, well, why the fuck do we need someone from Philadelphia to come to El Paso and maybe even to Juarez inevitably to do work with the underserved communities in El Paso and Juarez mm-hmm. when we have a fucking city full of people who most likely themselves are from these very same communities and who hopefully, like myself, maybe even you, I'm not too familiar with your backstory, but have transcended just a little bit enough, definitely in my case, not too far, but enough where we can turn around and fucking help, and yet we don't. I'm not against the help. I mean, if people want to help, help is welcome. I'm against the appropriation of that opportunity for you to advance your own interest and for you to say, now I'm the voice, now I'm the spokesperson of this kind of pain, or I am so aware of this experience that I'm going to give a conference about it, or now I'm going to publish my papers from being on the border because I was there for a couple of months helping, now let me tell you what these people go through, right? I'm against the profiting from the help. If you're going to if you're going to come and you're going to help, it's welcome, right? But we see in many instances, especially now with the cor- current socio-political rhetoric that we're experiencing, now people turn to the border and they want to come here and they want to see, well, why do they need a wall? What are these uh, migrants going through? Come and see and help, but don't use that to advance your academic career because you're going to profit from this pain. I made a comment the other day, and I'm just—it it makes me happy to hear this because it just—it it gives further credence to this fucking comment. Um, I mentioned how I kind of feel as though the trajectory currently in academia, with identity politics in general, is a backdoor way of brainwashing people like you and I, namely people of color, right? In what sense? In the sense that it's telling us that we are traditionally been marginalized, and because of that, we are victims, and that we and need powerless to, and powerless. Most importantly, powerless, and that because of that, we need other people as particularly in this instance, those who haven't been marginalized and who have had power, i.e. those of European descent, to keep it very fucking politically correct, right? Mm -hmm. That we need them, namely the fucking professoriate, which the majority of them in academia are, to tell us how the fuck to overcome it, right? right? So in that sense, it's almost as though, and this is getting deeper into this idea of, of brainwashing, the universities themselves are almost set up in such a way where they might appear to be benevolent, but there is this underlying colonial mentality behind them in which you have people of, you know, not, not people of color who are doing the exact same thing that you just said that you were vehemently against. And I was hoping maybe you could extrapolate your thoughts on that. Well, that's why I love being in El Paso sometimes, because here we have all kinds of leaders that are not just in academia to profit from us because they are like us, right? Because historically, that's how it's been here. But little by little, we're seeing that this door is opening and we have people saying, oh, wow, that looks like gold. This is a, an opportunity. It's like a treasure to them. So now let me see if I can infiltrate and start telling them how they should be doing philosophy, sociology, anthropology, psychology. We're not the only ones, right? Absolutely. We, we see that um, a lot of people are now seeing the advantages of being bicultural and binational. And I'm not even going to say bicultural, multicultural at this point because we're not just limited to two cultures, right? Um, so I think that's the appeal lately to, to border towns like ours. Um, but thankfully, people like, our, like ourselves are starting to be guarded against that and at least becoming outspoken enough for us to call it out. Uh, the response has been, well, then you're being racist. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> well, then look at what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's a very valid point for us to say, hang on, we are a new generation of philosophers that are working 10 times harder, that are encountering a lot of challenges. Why can't we have our own voice, right? And we are just like them being stubborn. And I hate this otherness of them, but it's important for us to, to, to mention we, we are in a way different, right? Because we've overcome 
a lot just for us to be in a position in which we get to call ourselves philosophers. It hasn't been granted to us. It doesn't come just with a degree. It doesn't come with 15 years of teaching. It, it, you have to prove yourself over and over and over again. And I think it's important for us to say when it comes to talking about borders, when it comes to talking about border student identity, when it comes to border pedagogy in terms of philosophy, we do have something to say because we've lived it day in and day out. I mean, we've experienced it. So this is this is uh, I mean this is a perfect segue because it's kind of getting again to this whole the the dilemma that I find myself personally in when it comes to this identity politics. Ninety nine point nine percent of me is fucking vehemently against them strictly for the reason that it strips us of agency. It feels like to me, right? Mm -hmm. And above stripping us from agency, I'm almost more afraid that it gives the agency away back to the people who've had the power the entire time, right? But that point one percent is the understanding that they do serve some importance, right? This idea that people like you and I, yeah, dude, we're part of a group of people, whether it was fucking on purpose or not, arbitrary, whatever the case is, there's no question that it's going gonna, it's gonna to mark the majority, it's going to mark all of our lived experience. We carry our, you know, I carry my Chicano hood with me everywhere I go, mm -hmm. right? It's fucking in my skin. You can see it on my face. Se ve la no planta en el frente o however the fuck the saying goes, right? <laughs> Nopal, yes. There you go. Ne planta some other philosophy shit. I apologize. Well, that one, you added on to it. <laughs> Maybe there's a little remix there, right? <laughs> so in that respect, I do understand the philosophy of the identity politics because it's like you're gathering this group of people together to try to get them to understand that you share a unified cause. Like you all, we're all in this unified struggle together. And this is a more direct unified struggle than the universal one as a human being this is one that we as you know people of you know indigenous mexica descent are uniquely privileged to so in that respect i'm wondering how you personally feel about the people here in el paso who have not necessarily maybe they've just not been awakened to it yet or maybe they flat out don't care but the idea here is simple it takes people like you and i to transgress or rather to overcome all these transgressions that our peoples have historically suffered throughout the course of this, you know, colonial project called the United States, right? Mm -hmm. But how can we do that if many people here are simply just not interested in that? And moreover, I guess I should add, qualify it, is it even our job to tell them that it's something they should be concerned about? Absolutely. It's absolutely our job. Um, I'm always guided by the pedagogical philosophy of Spinoza when he said, I don't know how to teach philosophy without being a disturber of the peace. So to me, it's super important for us to be not necessarily instilling ideas. I don't think that's our job, but I think definitely for us to be opening all of these questions in front of students, in front of other people, for them to see some sort of reflection. This is where I, I think the analogy of philosophy being like a mirror applies because you can tell people this is philosophy and this is how it affects your life directly. A lot of people see themselves detached from philosophy because nobody has taken the time to explain to them how it's embedded into their everyday, li everyday lives and they can't actually ex um, escape it. Um, I think our job is to make them aware of that presence that is always there. It's not necessarily to convince them of why it's important. It's just to kind of like, show a mirror for them to see how oh my goodness i've been philosophical ever since i was little but society told me it was annoying for me to question what is the moon made out of where does it go when i don't see it like little kids naturally are philosophical teenagers are philosophical when they start going through puberty and all these changes and i think it's the it's the role of philosophers to reteach re um I guess, just reintroduce these notions that have already been there. Um, a lot of people don't see how it applies to them, again, because others like ourselves haven't had the patience or haven't seen the immediate result for us to think that it's worth it to keep bringing it up. But I think that's the beauty of, of teaching, that day in and day out, we have that opportunity to allow for this reflection and this introspection um and it ultimately is fruitful 
I, I think. I mean, not all of our students will say, now I want to major in philosophy and I'm going to go and get a doctorate in Which philosophy. you should, motherfuckers. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> but even if they don't, then you have students going into law school and then sending you an email uh, two years later thanking you for what you said one time in class because that was useful in a discussion, you know? So it's not all for the ultimate goal of producing philosophers. It would be ideal, and I, and I strongly work for that as well. But even if it's just somebody that says, I'm going to think twice before I vote. I'm going to be very aware of how I'm treating people that are different. I'm going to think twice about um, whether I should part here or not, even if it's just for two minutes. Because philosophy is part of our everyday life. So with that in mind, I have to ask you this question. Because it's a question that I personally, in the four years that I've been fortunate enough to be at EPCC, it didn't come up the first couple years, but it's definitely come up to haunt me uh, within the last couple years, definitely within the last year. And the question is, well, before I give you the question, I'll let me fucking qualify with an experience that I know very well you are familiar with. You are in a class full of students on, let's say, a day where people don't normally come to class. Or a time that people don't my normally come to class. My students always come to class, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I got to step my game up to make sure mine do the same. <laughs> you are offering them something that keeps them coming back. I got to examine my own faults in that respect. But the idea here is like, obviously, we're not socialized in such a way that coming to a Saturday class, for instance. I'm going to use my example from today. Today's a Saturday for those of you listening to this in the future, whenever the fuck you listen to it. Right. But coming to a class on a Saturday is not something that we're socialized with. It's not normal. Right. Mm -hmm. Saturdays are for relaxing from the five, the five day week. Right. But we teach classes at EPCC. It's one of the great things that we do. Right. Um, on, on the weekend for students who are non-traditional in the sense that they can't come during the week. Right. But just because they're there in the class doesn't mean they want to be there in the class. Yes. And definitely within the last two years, I started to realize more and more how detached Students can be, not all of them, some of them though, right, from the whole educational process. And it was in this time that I started to ask myself, because, you know, as, as the professoriate, we're really good at asking students questions, especially as the philosophers, yes? And we're really good at expecting them to give us answers. But I never, me personally, had paused to consider the fact that maybe students can do the same to us, right? And one question that I had was specifically, why should these students be studying philosophy in the first place? Like, this is a very, very serious question that is driving a lot of my pedagogy at the moment. Like, what the fuck am I offering these students that is important enough for them to sacrifice two and a half hours of their day on a Saturday to come and learn? Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, my question then is, if you could tell anybody the benefits of well, not even the benefits, but maybe even the importance of studying philosophy. Why should you study philosophy? So this is scientifically proven. Anybody that studies at least one philosophy course will score higher on any standardized test. I didn't so know that. <laughs> one class in philosophy will improve your critical thinking to the point where you take a GRE, a GMAT, even an SAT score, and your score is proven to be higher. The GRE, for those of us who don't know, is for getting into a master's and the getting LSAT. into grad school. I believe it's getting into college. So for those that are taking early college high school or dual credit as high school students, you have at least two standardized tests that you will have to encounter. And this is an argument, right? Um, I like to think of philosophy as exercise for your mind. When you first started, you literally get headaches. You get exhausted. But then little by little, you're building up this um, condition for you to start being more critical. So again, one benefit is you improve your scores. Another benefit, every time I teach a portion of logic in my ethics class or in my intro to philosophy class or when I teach logic the entire semester, I tell my students, by studying logic, you're saving a lot of money because you're going to be aware of the people that want to steal from you, manipulate you. Because logical fallacies are, are a great tool for you to say, no, I'm not going to give in to your, to your manipulation of my emotions. No, that's a faulty analogy. That's actually a hasty generalization. So that's <laughs> another benefit. In terms of money, 
you save money and you can become rich if you know how to manipulate <laughs> and, you, and you learn things from the other perspective, right? That's what I'm trying to do, motherfuckers. <laughs> Another um, advantage to studying philosophy is that it gives you uh, autonomy in the sense that you're no longer going to say, I believe X because my parents told me to believe X. I follow Y because my religion tells me. It gives you this independence for you to freely say, this is why I believe X because I've analyzed it, right? Um, and that can change over time. And that's the beauty of philosophy, that you look back and you say, I can't believe I said that or I wrote that or I believe that four years ago. Um, Facebook memories is beautiful in that respect, right? The fucking <laughs> reminder of just how dumb as fuck we were four years ago. It's true. <laughs> that is true. Um, there's a documentary that I like to assign for my students. It is called On the Way to School. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to, to watch it, but it's a documentary about kids from all over the world and the journey that they have to embark upon every day to go to school. And we're talking about kids in India that take three hours in the morning to go to school because school is not so easily accessible. Um, they have to like cross rivers, people that have to struggle um, in other parts of the world, in Asia, in Africa. So when I assign this documentary, I get really unique responses. Uh, one of the papers that I've loved grading the most was a reaction to this film um the first sentence of it was i'm an idiot <laughs> wow right Powerful. and a student saying i cannot believe i take my education for granted uh, i couldn't stop thinking about how these little kids are so passionate about learning and yet here i am driving in my brand new car to school sitting there thinking when's lunch gonna be i want to meet my friends and this was like a very powerful reflection for me to have so I always find ways to appeal to the emotion of students <laughs> by showing them that it's a privilege, it's a luxury. People in other parts of the world are still getting killed for the types of questions that they have to consider because they're part of our curriculum in a philosophy class. So I think when you instill that awareness of the privilege and the luxury that it is to be educated, students will respond to that, right? I mean, you could also use scare tactics like very strict, course policies, which I myself have, <laughs> but that only works for a little bit. I think making them fall in love with the subject itself is a lot more powerful. And I think there's ways of doing that. There was, the, I actually was rereading one of the textbooks that we assigned to our students for the philosophy class. And I saw at the beginning, I, I don't know how I missed this in the beginning, uh, the first time I read it, but that they were actually trying to pass a law in Texas about six years ago, 2012 ish, that forbade the study of any subject that would allow that would enable students to be able to question their parents, right? right. Mm -hmm. And the obvious connection here but in the philosophy book that I was trying to make is that they're trying to stop them. Inevitably, it might be a little stretch, but it's not too far of a stretch that once you stop people from giving them, I should say more specifically, the ability to be able to question their parents, that it's just a matter of time before those same people are no longer able to question their government or able to question other people who may have these interests Religion. You know, religion, of course, another big one, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess in that respect, I really, I, yeah, I guess, in, you know, maybe in a, a one that I could add to my repertoire is the importance of, you know, exercising these cognitive capacities that we have. Just by virtue of being human. Like, you know, some of us are better at it than others. You know, it's just nature, right? But we all have them and we but can it all... it takes practice. Just like yes. I tell students, if you were to get on a treadmill right now after not being in the gym for two years and I tell you, come on, run for 40 minutes. You're going to be sore. You're going to hate yourself. It's going to be horrible. But if every day you do it for 20 minutes, you're going to feel like, okay, I can do this. It's part of my life, right? And I think philosophy is similar. Like when you haven't thought about all these complex issues, it's, it's better for you to say, it's not for me. Yeah, that, that, made me, that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable and I just better put it to the side, you know? But I, I, just like when you get discouraged by working out too much when you haven't done it in a while. So at the end of the day, though, um, I mean, moving beyond the working out example, because we don't, you know, there's no need. Because to... I don't work out. So <laughs> let's continue. <laughs> that's, that's not where I was going to go with it. But I mean, uh, the idea is that 
it's something that is readily available to everybody. Yes, at least assuming that you're mentally capable, you have you you possess the mental. Movies are philosophical. Hip hop is philosophical. Social media is philosophical. Anytime you go out with your friends and somebody says something that makes you feel uncomfortable, but you wonder why didn't I call it out? Every interaction we have is philosophical. It's a matter of recognizing it. It's not let's open our book to page thirty-five and let's study what philosophy is. It, it's part of our everyday interaction. Food is philosophical. Every time we make a choice, do I go for the organic? Do I go for the vegan? What does it mean? What are the implications? Okay, you took the really philosophical route, but I have to <laughs> ask, <laughs> I have to ask you a more direct one. What speaking of food, do you make of Taco Bell being rated the number one Mexican restaurant? Oh my goodness, I do not want to answer that publicly because I am the type of person that gets Taco Bell cravings uh, randomly and nothing <laughs> in this world will satisfy these cravings other than Taco Bell. And, and mind you, I grew up in Juarez. I have access to the best tacos in the world, right? But there's something about Taco Bell that is intriguing, right? Now, is it Mexican food? Absolutely not. And that's where I draw the line, right? I like it. I enjoy it. But for it to be labeled the number one Mexican <laughs> restaurant in terms of tacos, it's a disgrace to us, right? But I am a hypocrite because I love, especially this year, I discovered the Doritos shell. <laughs> now, that horrible hybrid mix of American and Tex-Mex, it is amazing. Um, but in all seriousness, I think that that goes to show us the, the lack of exposure that we have to authentic uh, foods, to authentic, and then we're going to get into the talk of what does it really mean to be authentic, right? Uh, Taco Bell is not authentic Mexican food, but it's delicious. I, it, I think that's going to be my compromise in that answer. <laughs> I mean, hey, I'm not here to cast any judgment at all whatsoever. <laughs> and before I continue, I just have to ask because I have to fucking ask. Because you mentioned that you were from J-Town, Juaritos, right? Yes. And you also mentioned that they had amazing tacos there. Yes. Yes. But have you ever heard the joke about why they don't have any stray dogs in Juanitos? Oh. I don't think that is a joke I want to explore. Juarez has the best food <laughs> in the world. And I've traveled plenty to make that assertion. Juarez has amazing, healthy, ethical food. I am just joking to all my peoples in Juaritos. Okay. My whole fucking family. Well, my mom, that, that definitely my other fat, the rest of my, my grandparents. Don't, try, in don't try to legitimize your little joke by saying, ah, oh, my family, I can't be a racist. I, my family uh, knows someone. Oh, I am that. definitely trying to legitimize at this point. <laughs> this is coming from someone, mind you, who would used to go to the $10 drink and drown at the tequila derby. We're talking about the nineties. None of your audience will remember <laughs> that glorious era. And if you don't, I apologize because you missed out on some shit. You missed out on some shit, dog. And what you definitely missed out on is the beauty of the street vendor who was fucking right outside. With tacos. With tacos. Made of what? I'll let you decide. Yeah, definitely. But were they delicious? Fucking amazing. Yeah. Amazing. No doubt. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason I bring up the Taco Bell example specifically is because, well, you you, kind of talked about it. You broached the subject a little bit earlier. And that was the current rhetoric, if you will, that seems to be occupying our current social political uh, atmosphere right now, mm-hmm. which is obviously, hateful. I'm sorry? It's very hateful. Very hateful, very right? Very exclusionary. Very exclusionary, no doubt about that, okay? Um, it's obviously in direct reference to the Trump administration, right? And uh, maybe I have, I don't know, Manuela, honestly, I am, it's not that I'm conflicted because confliction, I mean, yeah, I'm conflicted in the sense that I think it's good to be conflicted, right? Mm-hmm. Because being conflicted implies that you're thinking about you're something. Exactly, right. right? But I'm not conflicted in the sense that, I'm just going to be honest with you, I, I am not entirely convinced that a Trump presidency is the evil thing that everyone is making it out to be. And I was hoping I can get your thoughts on that. Well, elaborate. Why is it not evil? Okay, uh, the example, the, the prime example that I have been giving everybody is in terms of the women. Namely, the ones, the record number of women, Manuela, who have taken office and senators uh, as congresswomen, mm-hmm. right? And I honestly don't think that this would have happened had Hillary Clinton won the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, listen, this does, this is not a, a, a political discussion, it right? Is. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. I'll, I'll, I'll swallow that. But what I'm trying to say is that I'm not trying to endorse one candidate over another. So okay. much as I'm trying to say is that. Listen, I'll fucking straight up say, I did say in a previous podcast that I liked Trump, but I don't like him as a person. 
In fact, as as a hateful individual, I fucking think he's an asshole. No question about it. But I think that it's great that it took something like a Trump presidency to fucking wake people up, to make them realize, like, dude, this is not a fucking joke, bro. Mm -hmm. And this Trump presidency, even though it's only going to last a maximum of eight years, it fucking has lasting effects. And if you are not aware, if you are not informed, there are other people who are. If you are not voting, like the fucking Taco Bell incident, right? I never <laughs> got the survey, to be <laughs> To be to fair, be Manuela fair. didn't get the survey, to be <laughs> on record. But if you're not going to vote, or if you're not going to vote intelligently, dude, other people are. And they might not even be voting intelligently. And you might be fucking sitting there on election day, the same way that I was sitting in this very fucking room, thinking to myself, holy fuck, this dude's going to be the president of the United States. So I think we're talking about two different things. If we talk about did the negativity, did the hate bring the best in people? Mm, you could make the case that, well, people definitely reacted, right? People definitely said, oh, you know what? This is very bad. We need to do something about it. And we have positive outcomes like women being voted uh, in record numbers like, like we saw. But if we're going to make the argument, it, this is a very good presidency because look at all the positive outcomes. I disagree with that completely. Okay, let me let me just please reiterate there. I don't think it's a good presidency in that respect. As okay. far as the fucking politics are concerned, dude, it's it's fucking heartbreaking. Right. Honestly, honestly, Manuela, the fact that I'm okay, let's get political about it because fuck it, why not, right? The fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not resign during the Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. I am terrified of that. And I honestly hope that she fucking makes it to eight years in, in, in her position. Because she's, if she she's doesn't... very old and her health is deteriorating. And if she doesn't know. do that, Manuela, if she doesn't make it, exactly. that's fucking two. There we go. Two. And that is terrifying. That exactly. is two Supreme Court justices, right? Right. And so again, don't get me twisted. It's not because I'm trying to endorse the Trump presidency, but... Because obviously... But it, your initial claim was that it's not bad. No, no. The initial claim is that I, I'm not willing to accept... We get this rhetoric, for instance, that it, from the left, at least. It's become normalized. Now, if we look just simply at the statistics, right? Not about how you feel or how I feel. Let's look at the numbers. Hate crimes have risen. Yeah, Hate speech no has that. risen. People feeling unsafe. People feeling insecure. And when I talk about these people, I'm not just talking about the minorities in terms of people of color. I'm talking about people uh, LGBTQI. I'm talking about people with disabilities. I'm talking about anybody that is not seen as a mainstream, typical, how Trump defines an American, right? Absolutely. So we are seeing effects in all kinds of minorities. Okay, so with that in mind, though, and this is getting back a little bit to maybe maybe good isn't the right word to use. Maybe I need to find a better <laughs> yes. Word we're making progress to, to explain the the emotion that I'm feeling towards this. Right. But I'll grant you, we have had reactions that have brought light to the need that we had to act sooner. Exactly, and that's my point. Is yeah, okay, yes. The 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 statistics clearly indicate that the fucking hate crimes are rising, and that is terrible. That's terrible. But Children the hate crimes never went away. Families. Oh, that is the absolute worst. No question about it. But Manuela, what I'm trying to say is that none of that shit was unique prior to this Trump presidency. But it's not been amplified. As, exactly, it's not been as amplified. amplified. So where I say that it's quote unquote good, then is in the sense that at least now people are fucking paying attention to it. It's been there this whole time, mm -hmm. right? but at least we're paying attention to it now. And it might fucking suck. Like the growing pains might suck, but, and this is where we'll shift a little bit away from the politics. Not because I don't want to. We can fucking go down the rabbit oh, hole all we this. want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, because it's a philosophy podcast and I think ultimately the philosophy is the most important part. I am not convinced that suffering is a bad thing. Not, it's not, not individuals. at all. It is not at all. In fact, suffering is responsible for me being a philosopher. I speak for myself. And when we look at history, the philosophers that have suffered tragedy the most are the ones that resonate with most people, right? So suffering is good. However, I'm speaking now from a place of privilege in which this suffering allows me to talk about suffering because I've somewhat overcome it. But we can't be sitting here 
ha ha ha, we're on a podcast on a Saturday, suffering is good, to people that have no choice but to die because of it. That reflection of suffering comes after you've overcome certain uh, portions of it. And I don't think everybody has access or that privilege to overcome it immediately. Um, and I think that's where it becomes problematic for us to say, it's good, you can keep uh, dying a little bit more and, <laughs> and you'll see how it's good for you. No, absolutely. And in that respect, then, I guess we're going to get into another philosophical, it's, it's another philosophical problem that I wrestle with for a long time. And I guess it's, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, it, it's what informs my attitude towards it now. And the idea is simple. For the longest time, Manuela, I felt as though because other people didn't have the same privileges, quote unquote, that I have, that I wasn't entitled to enjoy them. But at, at, at yeah. after, a, exactly, like, what, what the fuck? I didn't choose to be born here. I didn't choose to be born, period. If I could sue my fucking parents, I don't know my dad, so There's fuck him. There's a guy right? doing that, exactly. so, so you wouldn't be the first one to drop it. <laughs> exactly, right? But I'd be like, what the fuck, ma? I didn't choose to be here. You brought me in this bitch. And I, did not, I didn't choose to be born here, right? I didn't choose to be a man. I didn't choose to be straight. None of that shit. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? But like Sartre would say, you choose to create who you are and overcome absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. But what I'm trying to get to then is like. Guilt is instilled to us as Mexican-Americans. Fucking Catholic right? church, if you, bro. <laughs> if you've ever been brought up Catholic, you're guilty of just being here. Oh, just being here. The fuck? Right. So the question then is. I get it. Like there's there's children being separated who are suffering, you know, from not being able to be with their parents more than, you know, most likely I would ever be because I was never detained by immigration center. Right. Let me just add a little bit more to that. We are not just talking about these kids that are separated from their families. We're talking about kids that came on their own because they're suffering cancer. And in Honduras and Guatemala, they don't have access to it. They're risking their lives to save their own lives and their parents use all of their savings for them to have a chance at living, right? When we just say all the, all the immigrant kids, no, they all have a very particular story. Absolutely. Right? No question about that. Now, just to further fucking drive the point home, and this is, again, this is where we move away from the philosophy, I mean, away from the politics and get to the philosophy. This is a very serious question, Manuela, and I'm going to qualify it You're by saying... you laughing. What is the serious question? Is life intrinsically valuable? I have to know. Okay. So I think it's super arrogant for anybody to say it is or it isn't because I think individuals are granted that autonomy to decide for themselves. Okay, you know what? I'm sorry. Let me cut you off. But before we continue, can you please explain to us what it means to be intrinsically valuable? Intrinsically valuable means something is either innate, intrinsic in the sense of in itself good because it's good or it's instrumental because it's good for something else. So when you say life is good because it's good, it's because it's good. As circular as it sounds, the value of life is 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 good, right? Um, and so the question is, is life inherently good? Or do individuals get to decide life is good, life is bad? And I myself would not dare make the argument that it's intrinsically good for everyone because now we're getting into issues of euthanasia and abortion and people have to live because they have to live. My favorite kind of issues. <laughs> and I'm not, I, I recognize that I will not cross that line. It's inherently good for me, right? Because I've, I've chosen to keep living and to keep fighting despite the suffering. And I encourage my loved ones, maybe because I'm selfish, to keep living because I want them around. But for me to go to someone that is suffering and for me to tell them, you have to keep living because life is inherently good. That's super arrogant. Very because arrogant. I don't know I what they're going through. Absolutely agree. So my answer is, it depends. <laughs> That's a very good answer. It's a very partisan answer. <laughs> or very bipartisan answer. <laughs> I'm not anyway. being politically correct. That's genuinely what I think. Oh, no, absolutely. I understand that. So let me, let me qualify it further then by saying, not just you know to you know not redeem per se, but definitely explain a little bit my, my, my reasoning. And definitely to qualify my question, it's because, well, I honestly, me personally, this is letting you a little bit insight into my own personal life. I went down the rabbit hole and I feel as though I kind of got lost in that rabbit hole of feeling so powerfully that all life was intrinsically valuable. And I lost myself in the sense that I was so focused on making other people's lives better, mm -hmm. but I never focused on my own life. Mm -hmm. Right. And right. So when I ask, is life intrinsically valuable? It's not to be facetious. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. It, it, it devastates me. It really does, mm -hmm. right? 
to see the utter disregard that people seem to have for life, whether it be shit like the fucking immigrant centers here, right here in our own backyard, whether it be the drone strikes in the Middle East, whatever the case might be, where you just flippantly dismiss the life of an individual because, well, they're not part of the group. Mm -hmm. Yes? But at one point or another, I just had to realize that I there's only so much I can do, you know? The most activism, for instance, that I could possibly do, me standing on a corner with a street sign isn't going to help anybody, you know? So the it best, might. It might. It might, right? But it's not going to have a resounding effect. Right. The real activism is going to happen in our classrooms, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea then was, at what point am I going to have to just concede that I am powerless in many respects? You never do that. Okay, if you please explain, You clarify. never do that. Um, we have been told for many years that we are powerless. We have been told for many years that we are inferior. We have been told for many years that our voice doesn't matter. And if we repeat that, right, we're never going to get ahead. We're never going to actually have a voice. So we recognize that we have power. And in some cases, our power, our power might be limited, right? But we always have power. Um, immigrant kids have power. Not as Absolutely. much power Absolutely. as the people that are imprisoning them in cages. I agree. Right? But we recognize that we have power. And it's in how we use that power that change comes about. So maybe my, my strength is not in creating a sign and staying uh, outside all day with, with, a, with a poster board. But for some people, that's the power that they have, and that's what they're going to use, right? Uh, our power is manifested differently. So I'm very against saying, no, we don't have, we don't have power. Um, we just have different types of power, and we have different ways of manifesting it. And I think the first step is just recognizing that. Okay. Um, I'm fucking 100% on board with you. And to just continue... Those are impressive statistics. Which ones? 100%. Oh, I know. That just means that you're the shit and I'm acknowledging it. No doubt. Right? But uh, there's also questions of, you know, this, this, this karmic push and pull, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea of you have one of two choices. You can either focus on saving the world or you can focus on tending to your own garden, as it were. What you can, in fact, change. Mm -hmm. Right? So my dilemma, at least currently now, is in learning where the boundary is between the two. Because ultimately, I'm taking it more from a, a, a teleological point, Manuela, okay. right? For those of you not philosophically, uh, you know, uh, astute, teleological means it's just, there's just an end goal to all this. Purpose. Like, what, what is the end purpose of all this? Exactly, right? And it seems, when I say powerless, there's definitely the, the, the social political context, which I agree with you fucking wholeheartedly. We are not powerless in that respect. I could be in solitary confinement and still be 100% in control of my own life, right? Look at all the women that were voted into office, Exactly. Right? This is where we manifest our power that exactly. we didn't have all along. Exactly. But what I'm speaking to more now is from a point of understanding that life in itself is fleeting. Everything is fleeting. Absolutely. Right? And as a human being transcending all sorts of social political connotations, we don't have much power to stop that from happening. We don't have any power when it comes to like the cosmic forces of the universe that would decide that our life ends today. We don't we don't control that. But in a in a smaller level of do I get to be a good person or do I get to harm others? Do I wake up today and work really hard? Or do I just say I'm going to be a victim because I have depression and the world owes me? We do have that power. Now, do we have supreme power as far as to I'm going to end the world today? We, we recognize that we have power and it comes in increments and sometimes it's limited, but it's there. So in that respect, I just have to ask. We'll transcend the whole border. Where do we put the border up for now? Not the border, like the fucking wall being built in our backyard. That shit's coming whether we want it or not, dog. It's been here. It's been here. You're and, right. And, and, it it, has. And, and Trump didn't build it. He it was it. here with It was Obama. fucking Bill Clinton. Well, it could be. I don't know. That's what I remember it, at least. Okay. But that's just me showing my yeah, age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But, but you're right. It's been there. So the borders I was talking here is the idea of how much do I give to the world and how much do I focus on myself? In my last podcast, I talked about the importance of being selfish. Not the importance, but why it's not necessarily a bad thing to be selfish, right? So my question then is, 
maybe you could extract or maybe expand on the idea of whether it's a good thing to only be concerned with oneself or more specifically directly why it's a bad thing to only be concerned with oneself so for my ethics classes i love to use john quinones what would you do episodes uh if you're not aware of how these episodes work they have hidden cameras and they recreate these scenarios in which they're full of actors but people's reactions are real um so it gets um it gets to show us how human nature kind of works because you have people having to react to like a homeless person or to like a stabbing and and it's the hidden cameras that that show you how people tend to react there's one uh episode in particular that i love showing because it's uh an older lady she's in her 70s she goes to pick up her prescription and the pharmacist and they're obviously actors but the people around are just regular people uh the pharmacist tells her tells her uh i can't fill your prescription because your copay is 80 dollars and she says it can't be I, i don't have any money i and she starts crying and then you see a lot of people just looking away like it's not my problem right one of the reactions that i love is an older lady who immediately opens her 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 purse and she's going through her her things and you can see that she only has five dollars and she says okay and she gives her the five dollars and she says I, i'm sorry this is all i have and she gives her the five dollars right and then you have another lady that sees this interaction and says uh okay uh put twenty dollars on my card and that'll help her and the pharmacist says that's not going to be enough i'm only going to be able to give her half okay do another five dollars right so i always ask my students what are we what are we judging here is it the lady that gave 20 25 dollars or is it the lady that didn't have anything but the five dollars right and it opens up a very interesting discussion because people are saying in my class that was beautiful like she gave everything she had but then there's other students that will say but wait a minute like that's really bad because that's all she had who's going to help her right so i don't think there's a standard answer for us to say well let's go to chapter 10 for the answer who was the best person who was the most ethical i think we recognize what our capabilities are in terms of giving But if you're that person that seriously just looks away like okay, well this is uncomfortable and does nothing, then I think that in itself is the bad thing, right? If you give 20, 25 or if you give 5 and that's all you had, I think that's a very personal choice. But doing nothing is the worst kind of person in my opinion. So there's people that all they have is $2 to go to the dollar store and and buy their poster board and their marker. Back to the damn poster boards yes. again. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's other people that will donate millions of dollars and I mean you can't say oh millions of dollars that's better. At least that's how I see it. Okay. I think honestly this is just such a fucking complex subject to discuss, right? Mainly because I mean, what are we to do with the people who don't agree with us per se in the sense that some people think that doing anything at all is pointless because of all the reasons that we brought up mm-hmm. while other people will vehemently say that doing nothing is fucking evil even in some instances, mm-hmm. right? So when I say it's 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 such a complex issue is because more so it's me projecting my desire to make sense of what the fuck am I Isaac Seniceros 2019 Borderland, Frontera. We're fucking front lines, Manuela, from a culture war. What the fuck are we supposed to do? Mm-hmm. How do we make sense of everything that's going on right now? And I think again, it would be super arrogant for me to tell you, Isaac, why were you not at the protest when <laughs> Trump came? Oh, then my daughter saw fucking. Why are you not volunteering at all of these shelters for migrants? Because it's not my place to do that. The only thing we can do is encourage people to recognize that they have that power and they could be doing something whether it is by teaching soccer whether it is by teaching history or philosophy whether it is by protesting but it's that recognition of that power that will allow you to say okay something's got to change you know a lot of people here in El Paso really felt like well I mean what can I do what could I possibly do uh I mean who's going to listen to me right but that's the thing like you could be doing so much more okay and with that in mind i have to broach this subject 
because we're going to get accused by the few fucking people who will listen to this and fucking who know us personally. Definitely. I, I'm pretty sure it already went viral. Like 11 people have heard this. <laughs> For I'm me, gonna, that's I'm pretty gonna, viral. I'm going <laughs> to just get wild and say that. There are some people, Manuela, who are listening right now who are going to accuse us of being fucking lefty liberal professors because that's all professors are or in college. Or loser teachers. Or loser to teachers. To use current rhetoric. Exactly. So when they hear teaching, you say... If teaching values of respect kindness and um telling students that they have power just because they're a minority they have a voice then you can label it as however you want but philosophy has always been accused of that socrates was accused of corrupting the young minds of the athenians he was put to death because he was telling people hey wake up you have a voice you have power we we're only doing what philosophers are supposed to be doing Absolutely. I agree in the sense that philosophy appears to be, at least appears to be, inherently progressive in the sense that it does seem to be concerned with universal principles. Now, whether we can fuck, we can argue in a different time right. whether these fucking universals exist in the first they, place or not, right? Or not. But there seems to be this push towards a universal that, you know, justice, liberty, and the pursuit thereof, right? Mm -hmm. But there are some people who will still argue that we only feel this way because of the position that we occupy. Mm -hmm. Namely, as you know, we're both, you know, fucking PhD students at UTEP. Mm -hmm. We're both philosophy professors, no less Manuela. We're philosophy professors. That's very privileged, mm -hmm. right? And they will say that we're out of touch with fucking people who don't share these beliefs, especially here in El Paso where, dude, there's a lot of conservative people here. Mm -hmm. And they will say, I'm not fucking, I'm not down, I'm not down with this with these seemingly progressive liberal lefty fucking ideas how would you challenge how would you answer that i would ask what are the progressive ideas that we are teaching again are we going to go back with helping others with having humanity when it comes to other people's suffering when it comes to recognizing our arrogance and saying i'm not going to push for what i don't understand if that's the accusation then i think they need to be more worried about their labels and how they're living their lives then us be worried about what we're just continuing to, what we're continuing to um, distribute, which is these tools for, for self-introspection and, and challenging whatever is, is unjust. There's so much more, Manuela, that I want to ask you. But before we started this podcast, y'all motherfuckers watching this in the video, we promised that we were going to keep it at about an hour, which unfortunately... We are already at. Okay, good. Right? Not good in the sense that, okay, well, it's over. But I didn't think we were going to last an hour because I thought, oh, we're going to run out of things to say. But That's not possible. Not possible. <laughs> in fact, I'm actually bummed now because there's so much fucking more I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to talk to you about Chicanismo. I wanted to talk to you about being uh, a, a young lady from Juarez, Mexico, who found her way at Texas A&M University on the dime of a father who worked very hard to pay her tuition. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you about identity politics that are trying to tell you that you're a victim, which I don't think you agree with that. I don't. There's so much more. Well, but good. I guess, unfortunately, we're going to have to save that for another podcast. We will. And before we get there, I guess, before I wrap this bad boy up, I will just say, is there any last thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with for today? Yes. I want to emphasize the importance of creating these types of platforms in which if people won't give us a voice to discuss what it's like to be a border philosopher, we're going to go ahead and figure out a way to do it. Uh, and I also want to emphasize the importance of everyday philosophy and the recognition that you don't have to have a PhD in philosophy to realize that philosophy can be a very powerful tool in your life. So if anybody's hearing this or watching this and they're saying, well, what is philosophy? Don't be discouraged to just kind of like get your feet wet and pick up a philosophy book or there's a lot of interesting websites out there for maybe taking a philosophy class, you know? So it doesn't have to be this elitist academic bubble that is um, unreachable by others. Beautiful. And if I could just respond to that, I would just say, first of all, fuck Plato. <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute that was an abrupt conclusion <laughs> and second of all if you want to find me personally on social media you can find your boy on facebook at ice mf nice 13 that's ice motherfucking nice i already told you before don't fucking act like you're brand new dog 
IceMFNice13 on Facebook, IceNice underscore El Profe on Instagram, and OG underscore IceNice13 on Twitter. Manuela, I won't put you on blast and say if you want to. Uh, my Instagram is, is open. It's M-E-N-A, Mena, and then together, Gomez, G-O-M-E-Z, Mena Gomez on Instagram. Beautiful. And I will definitely fucking tag her on the Instagram. A so lot of Chihuahua dog pictures. Don't even expect philosophical content. It's mostly like pictures of my tacos. Some you Taco might, Bell. You might find some Taco Bell on there and some Chihuahua <laughs> dogs and well, you'll get the real deal. The real deal is the most important thing, right? So whatever the case is, I hope you all enjoyed this shit. And I look forward to having Manuela back on the podcast soon. And I look forward to... I hope to this recorded, by the way. Oh, it definitely I, I, did. It's right there. I can see it recorded. Okay, good. Yeah. And um yeah, and if you didn't enjoy it, fuck you. Okay, no, I'm not endorsing. That's this. me. That's yeah, me personally. I'm not, I'm not. That's Thank me you for personally. Watching. Thank you for your time. I, I am not endorsing. That. Saying this is five, bro. This is five <laughs> podcasts already. And if you haven't enjoyed it, like, what the fuck more do you want? Okay, I ain't gonna give it to you. So go look for it elsewhere. And if you have enjoyed it, my fucking utmost respect and thanks and appreciation. Okay, so thank you, and we'll see you soon. Peace. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.